welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And I'm trying to keep up during the busy holiday season. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving and uh, has a wonderful Christmas season. This is episode number 185, number 185. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. K-B-M-A-K-E-L at A-O-L dot com. Or put them in the comments section of Podbean. So, yeah, you'll just look us up on Podbean and it'll have a place where you can put comments and you can put them in there. Few people have, but that's really not where we get most of our stuff. But be that as it may, it is still there. Uh, You know, the first thing I want to talk about is something that's only obliquely gun-related. Um... as you know, there was a there was a football game, and I, I pay only a little bit of attention to such things. But there was a little kid there who was cheering his team on, the Kansas City Chiefs, and he was dressed in a headdress, which I've ca- I've come to find out that you cannot wear at Arrowhead Stadium. So if you are a fan of the Chiefs, you cannot wear an Indian headdress in the Chiefs' home stadium, Arrowhead Stadium. But this kid had one because they were in Oakland, so or not Oakland, Las Vegas, I guess. They they the team moved. So the Oakland Raiders are now the Las Vegas Raiders, I guess. So this kid had a headdress and he had half his face painted black and half his face painted red. And of course they got a camera shot of him, just the the profile of the black part of his face. And, of course, all these cries of racism and, and uh, um, what's the other buzzword they use? Oh, cultural appropriation as an insult to Native Americans. All this other stuff. And, of course, the truth comes out. The kid himself is, is of American Indian descent of some degree. Um, his father is a member of a tribal council. Uh, they found that around the... National Football League, many of the uh, teams, even if their names are not American Indian related, uh, paint their faces with the uh, team colors, including using black on half of it and, and say, blue or, or, you know, turquoise or whatever whatever the, the team colors are. So this is not done, and it is not an affront to any group. It is simply people who were out there. Now, Again, this is not me. I am not their customer. I am not painting myself up to go to a football game. But, you know, there are some people, this is a big part of their lives. This is a big part of the things they do. And we do live in a free country. And we should we should be respectful of this kind of stuff. Uh, that, that people have a right to go out and have fun. Personally, I, I, and of course there's always a spectrum, a wide spectrum of opinion. But... A lot of the American Indians are, are not offended when somebody gets in a headdress and does that, you know. They're not mocking. They're they're enjoying and paying tribute. But it comes down to this thing of cultural appropriation. And so I, I do think that if a black person likes Japanese culture, and they're clearly not ethnically Japanese, but they like the culture, they want to go learn the language or learn the uh, martial arts or learn how to sumo wrestle 
or or wear the uh, I don't know what they call the robes you know the traditional Japanese robes I, I women's or kimonos maybe the men's are kimonos too I don't know um, they want to wear those things and participate in that culture it's fine uh, if they want to go to if an Asian person wants to go to the you know Highland Games and toss the caber with people who are of Scottish descent that's fine um, there's nothing wrong with that it, partaking in other in cultural events and outfitting yourself in the the appropriate clothing and all that is not disrespectful it's not disrespectful now there are things that can be disrespectful and I'm not going to go into those but when people have no disrespectful intent and they're simply trying to enjoy a culture that is not appropriation I don't even know what appropriation means anyway it's not like you have a, an aboriginal tribe in Australia who decides that they're going to be Norwegian you know I mean they're, they're you just don't I don't understand even the whole concept of it uh, enjoying other cultures is things that bring people together and not things that separate people you can't have these rules that only certain people can do certain things and other people can't do certain things and uh, I think it's all just terrible but it's it's the time we live in and this was clearly a young kid I think he's under 10 years old maybe he's 9 10 years old and some scumbag from Deadspin is it called Deadspin or is it some something spin um, and so I guess it's dead spin is this sports site that you know it's content creators just like the just like all the gun content creators they have sports content creators and this guy went all you know just just went crazy over all this and you know got debunked immediately and I think they should rename their thing to dud spin <laughs> because they it, it blew up in their face as it should we, we have to kind of get past some of this um, it is not it is not culturally healthy for microcultures to be at each other's throats and we have a lot of microcultures in our society so it's just not really good to be at each other's throats like this um, you know the last thing we need are a bunch of radicalized Hamas like characters running around um, who've got some perceived grievance that they're they're going to you know keep getting keep getting radicalized on and keep accelerating the rhetoric and and eventually the violence you know it's it's terrible I will tell you that uh, I won't set foot in an NFL stadium for a couple of reasons uh, the first reason is I didn't like that kneeling business um, I, I've gone over that before um, you know too many people have given their life for the flag we and, and the national anthem and we don't need that being disrespected by people who are making millions of dollars um, so they can feel good about themselves I mean if they don't have a better business ethos than that um, then they they don't deserve any money um, my whole deal is personally there is a right of free speech and if a player wants to get on his Instagram or his now X, which used to be Twitter or Facebook, he can rant and rave all he wants. Power to you. Freedom of speech, man. Go for it. Uh, 
But during the game, in the public, when you're representing an organization, you have to show proper decorum and respect. I think that's a very reasonable balance to draw. So that's one reason. The other reason is the last time I was in an NFL stadium, which was a while ago, um, it was a drunken rabble. Uh, once we got in and got to our seats, it was fine. But getting there, I mean, there are people who, for a night game, uh, they get there mid-morning, maybe even earlier, and they're drinking and partying all day. And by the time game time comes around, I'm surprised they can find the stadium even as big as it is. Um, it's an absolute outrage that, you know, that kind of behavior is condoned. And this is not an exaggeration. As we were walking up to the gate, of course, everybody is downing the last of their beer because you cannot bring alcohol into the stadium so that you can pay their exorbitantly high prices get when you buy alcohol inside the stadium. Uh, we were literally, it was like following the yellow brick road of crushed beer cans. We were literally on top of layers, walking on layers of crushed beer cans. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like that in my life. And then we got up there. I can't remember if it was a magnetometer or went through something um, where they kind of, you know, trying to make sure you weren't smuggling something in. Um, and most people bring it in in flasks, you know, if it's hard liquor. But, um, yeah, there was some sort of anti-smuggling operation going on up there when you uh, gave your ticket and went in the gate. Uh, so we got in there. We watched the football game. Uh, when we came out... You know, of course, it's dark. It's late at night. It was, um, I, I, yeah, I can't remember. I think it started at 7 o'clock in the evening. It was a winter game, so it was completely dark. By the time we get out of that thing at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock, um, people who had been drinking now for 12 hours, um, there was fighting going on, all kinds of nonsense. Um, you know, we I had to steer... Uh, the people I was with, I had to steer them away because they almost walked in the middle of them because all of a sudden it just happens right in front of you. Um, it, you know, it was a bad scene. I would never... I, I just don't choose to be a part of that. I, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to get into a scrap over a, a stupid football game. And people take this way too seriously. And uh, so that's another reason I won't set foot in an NFL stadium. The third reason is, you know, as far as I know, and, and I haven't checked into the legal contracts of this, this is just my general, uh, you know, kind of hand wave to the thing. Um, the stadium and its environs, meaning parking lot, are uh, paid for usually by the taxpayers of the, of the city or the county that they're in. So it doesn't belong to the team. Yet, that doesn't stop them from charging anywhere. I think with the last time I went to a game, it was like 25 bucks, but I've heard it's up to 50 bucks now to uh, park in there. So you get in there, park, and, you know, that's 50 bucks. And that just kind of goes right into their coffers. But is that really, and I suppose there's some lease agreement or something that allows them to do this, but in, in reality, that, that's really not money they're entitled to. I mean, face it. Because they're really not renting parking places. In a lot of cases, they're renting party places 
where people are bringing in and, and doing all this tailgating and and all that you know and and now I don't want to tell you I'm a complete curmudgeon when I was a teenager my family would go to a football game a professional NFL football game and we would tailgate now that was just a a little grill you know no beer no 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 good getting wild or anything like that I was kind of sitting out there kind of listening to the pregame show or whatever and then packing it up and going into the uh, um, going into the football game you know that that's kind of what that was it wasn't an all-day party it wasn't this whole thing it wasn't it wasn't what it has become today so um, you know I, I don't know about the NFL I don't it's it's a giant money-making machine and people keep pouring their money into it. Uh, go go buy go buy a jersey of your favorite player. See how much it costs you. Used to cost, you know. I, I'm sure you paid a ten or fifteen dollar premium. So thing probably cost you fifty bucks. Now I think those things can, uh, can cost quite a bit more. So uh, think about think about the money that gets poured into all that. Freaking unbelievable. But that's my that's my thing. You know, we live in a free country. That's why we we have freedom to enjoy our firearms, and that's why people should enjoy their firearms. And uh, you know, other people can't really tell us how to dress, how to act, how to do all this. We live in a free country, so there you go. Um, the NFL, though, you know, I, and again, does the NFL own the stadium? How? How come a team can say, well, you can't wear a headdress into the stadium? Because they don't own the stadium. I, I guess it's got to be in some sort of lease agreement where they're allowed to just like make all the rules. But, um, you know, that's taxpayer ground. And uh, I'm not really sure that, uh, you know, in the broad general scope of things, that that's really the uh, the kind of authority that we want to lease out to these people well be that as it may uh, we can now go into questions and answers which is the you know really the most fun part of this for me anyway so um, you know we got a bunch of things that are that have stacked up the first thing is have you heard of the Secret Service agent who's written a book a recent book saying that he found the bullet in the car that JFK was riding in when he was when he was shot and he put that bullet on the gurney and it went into the hospital you know I, I've I've heard I've heard this I've not read the book will not probably read the book uh, you know this is another attempt to get more it's the six, 60th anniversary which is amazing and uh, it is something that is really, you know, it was a huge event. It was a huge event for people who lived through it. Probably every bit as traumatic as, as Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, that was the that was the big thing. You know, Pearl Harbor nobody remembers now, and pretty soon nobody will remember the JFK assassination either. But uh, as far as having firsthand knowledge of it, and and really what a what an impact on the psyche that it was. Um, yeah, I mean, I can disclose this. Uh, my godfather was one of the physicians who uh, was in 
Parkland Hospital when they brought JFK in. He was also on duty when they brought in Lee Harvey Oswald two days later. Talk about luck, you know, luck of the draw. And even later, years later, he treated uh, a terminally ill Jack Ruby in prison. So he had connections to all three of the main figures in that event. So uh, I have my own views on the assassination. I, I am not going to go through them here, but yes, I did hear that a bullet was found in the car and put on the gurney. I, I think that I just don't believe it simply because um, that would have been a horrible breach of FBI procedure, evidence, protocols, and everything else. And to conceal that for 60 years and then, gee, it comes out when the book does as kind of a sensationalism of the book. Um, I kind of see that as something that uh, I, I kind of take with a big grain of salt. So, yeah, I've, I've heard of that. But I tell you what, it, it would not... The fact that that bullet could inflict a horrible wound and remain relatively intact as a full metal jacket military bullet... Um, seems to be very, very possible to me. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't discount that maybe he saw it on the gurney, maybe he's misremembering, or maybe he's just trying to sell the book. So that's all I think about that. But, you know, I do find it remarkable that even after all these years, the JFK assassination is still a very controversial subject and a subject where people do not believe what their government tells them. Which, back then, you could probably believe more what your government would tell you. Now, <laughs> I don't know that we believe anything. Uh, I just don't know that we believe anything. So, anyway, that's the, that's the deal with the bullet on the gurney. The whole JFK thing. Yeah, that's, that, that was a very bad deal. That was a very, very bad deal. So, ah, let's go to our next question. Okay, what should I choose as a first black powder cartridge rifle? Uh, we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to belabor this. Um, I'm going to say, uh, I do believe if it's your first one and you've never shot black powder cartridge before, you, you have to get a 45. You don't have to. The best one to choose, the optimal choice, is a 4570. Because simply um, you can get um, brass very easily, bullets very easily, uh, loading it is very straightforward. It's essentially a straight-walled case. All of that is all of that is good. So the cartridge you really want to select is 4570. Now it's not as sexy as you know 4590 or 45110. You know quickly down under. There's even a 45-120. Um, you know, those are those are very cool cartridges. And of course, if you if you love the British Empire stuff, the uh, 577-450. But boy, you know, you're unless you can unless you can craft your own ammunition, um, some of those anything other than 45-70 is very becoming very difficult to to feed. So. Um, if you want to shoot it and enjoy it, um, 4570 is the way to go. 
and I would also get a single shot. Um, they do make 45-70 lever guns, and you could say, well, I'll just, you know, shoot black powder loads in one of these. You can do that, but, you know, the cleaning becomes a lot more problematic. I would not do it. Go with a single shot. Uh, they're out there. And it, it depends on your... It depends what you want to get out of it. Um, there are great numbers still of single-shot trapdoor Springfield rifles out there. And, and they sell right around a thousand bucks in, in many places. Um, you know, condition and rarity and, and, and a few other things, model, different models and all that can, can uh, fluctuate the price. And those rifles are like 140 years old, but man, they still work. Shows you what a great design that was, what kind of, what kind of craftsmanship went into those that they still work after all these years. Uh, so that's it, that's it. Plus there are modern reproductions. Um, you can go with those and, and you can spend you know up to a lot of money on one of those. I don't know if black powder silhouette is still a thing. You know they used to have black powder cartridge silhouette. Um, and, and the deal with that was there were certain cartridges that worked better than others. And uh, you know, but I don't think you can get loaded ammunition for most of that. Uh, even the places that have had it from time to time all seem to be out of stock. So 4590 sharps, which is kind of bottlenecked, or 4070, or you know, 4065. Some of these, you know, there's a whole group of these cartridges that are uh, very, very difficult to find. Um, to find ammunition for but 4570 you can find cowboy loads in that you can still find occasionally some black powder loads done it and you can make them yourself um, really pretty pretty uh, efficiently so that's what that's what I would go with it's also you know there's a lot of um, the the other thing is there's a lot of material on ballistics about 4570 that you won't find for other cartridges I mean, yeah, you could put it in a ballistic calculator, but there are guys who've actually written books on how to shoot black powder 4570, and uh, so that's really what I would go with. And it's a very cool cartridge. Uh, it's it's more common uh, because it's still a modern good cartridge, you know. It's still a thumper, and uh, but you can really do some good work with uh, a black powder cartridge rifle. One of the best groups I've ever shot at 100 yards was with a, a trapdoor Springfield, and it was, you know, three, uh, three sh uh, shots touching, and did it a couple different times. So it wasn't like just some fluke, you know. It was a, it was a pretty good deal. They're good rifles. So, um, 45-70 is a good caliber. Okay, next question. I have a Crag bayonet in a leather scabbard will it fit and it's dated m1902 it's dated 1902 will it fit an m1903 springfield rifle well you have to try it but the answer is basically yes um it, a crag bayonet will fit a 1903 springfield rifle they, they did make those kind of interchangeably the um the leather scabbard is kind of a another that's another one of those things that no one has investigated really fully 
here is here is just my take on it uh, the leather scabbard is not actually a scabbard it's a scabbard for a picket pin which is something you would drive into the ground and tie your horse to if you were in the cavalry um, crag scabbards were notoriously the metal scabbards for a crag rifle were notoriously uh, frail uh, they, they dent up and break and everything else so a lot so the surplus dealer bannerman which is the one that I've, I've seen referenced they basically started mating these bayonets that didn't have scabbards with these picket pin scabbards because the the bayonet fit in it and it worked and uh, sold them and you know for a while you know they sold them as hey these are carbine bayonets well the crag carbine never had a a um, provision for a bayonet so couldn't have been that what I think has happened is and this is my speculation my speculation is that the army had crag rifle bayonets and they had a bunch of broken scabbards so they enterprisingly said we don't really use that many picket pins anymore so they mated the two together now why would they do that well for training purposes for like the first world war where any piece of equipment when you have people training with wooden dummy rifles any piece of equipment is worth it and hey if that's what you need to use for a sheath for a crag bayonet you're going to use that the other thing was uh we had the in during the first world war in, in that era um we still had some horse cavalry units down on the Mexican border. You know, we could, we just couldn't, you know, leave that thing undefended like we do today. We couldn't just leave that undefended. So there were units down there and they were cavalry and they had in some most cases 1903 rifles in scabbards and they you know of course if you have the rifle you're going to have to have a bayonet. It will only be natural to use the um, picket pin scabbard as a bayonet scabbard so I, I think that that's probably they got used that way and they could have gotten used just as just in training I think training was a uh, a great way to use a uh, um, you know scabbard and, and you know the the crag bayonet they weren't going to ship overseas so they could have the trainees use it hey it doesn't have a scabbard so you use the picket pin scabbard so i just don't believe it was purely a fiction of a surplus company that that came up with it on their own as a good idea they probably got a bunch in like that and and maybe made it up more but um i think that uh, probably just pragmatically that's how the bayonet and the picket pin scabbard got made it up so that's it but you know i haven't tried one in forever so i'd have to i'd have to check it out but um a bay a crag bayonet will fit a 1903 rifle and theoretically it'll fit a uh, an m1 garand and uh, nobody would really do that but you could you could okay let's talk about something else here we have milser prices are they going to continue to climb and how can you put together a collection in the face of climbing prices uh, here's how you do it 
go to estate sales, go to gun auctions, you know, where they're auctioning off an estate. That's the only place you're going to find a, a deal. Or you, you buy from friends. If you know somebody who has one and they're willing to sell, uh, you can make them a good faith offer. Um, let's just say that a gun is worth, <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm not going to use the word worth. Let's say that the person has a older military rifle and they're fetching a thousand dollars on Gunbroker in in fine condition, and you find one in fine condition. Um, for that person to sell it, if they go sell it to a gun shop or or some other way, they're they're going to get the wholesale price so that the the gun shop can then mark it up and get the retail price. That's just that's just the way business works. Um, if they sell it on Gunbroker, they got to pay fees. So you might be able to say, look, I'll give you more than what the gun shop will, but less the price of Gunbroker, and you then uh, don't have to pay any fees. And you know, do you have to do it all legally? And of course, some states require you have to go through an FFL for all this. Many states do not. So you you can purchase it that way. Um, the gun auction route is a really good thing. Um, up up here where we have our our little hideaway place, um, there was a a an estate auction, and they basically sold off. Uh, the man had a lot of hunting shotguns and things. Some very very awesome pieces. Nothing I was particularly interested in, although I would have liked it. You know. It was cool. There was a double. It was a uh, three-barrel gun, a drilling of some kind, and it had two barrels were 16 gauge, and one was 43 Mauser. You know, and this was a European gun, beautiful stock, and all this kind of stuff. Definitely old. It had some age to it, and uh, the barrels may have even been Damascus barrels, for all I know. But um, a very, very cool gun. And he had a lot of different guns like that. But he had a few old older mill serps and so I was able to get into a 98k which I really wasn't looking for but hey I was able to get into it less than 500 bucks which now if you try to buy one you know people want significantly more so uh, and the nice part is I was able to look at it it, it met met my standards it was all original so I really uh, enjoyed it it was late war but you know hey that's the way it goes sometimes uh, I didn't ha I don't have a problem with that so that filled a nice, nice little hole in my collection there. So anyway, um, Milser prices are high, but you can find the deals. But you have to look. You like everything else. It's not going to fall in your lap. There's rarely, if ever, going to be the big Milser deal where you know you open up Shotgun News and for 150 bucks you can buy this, that, or the other thing. Um, the only time that's ever going to happen, maybe, is. Uh, if Cuba gets rid of their government, becomes real friendly, and they sell all their surplus stuff to our dealers, Venezuela could probably do the same thing, you know. Unless it's unless it's a big cachet like that, um, things are going to kind of stay the way they are for a while. So, you got to keep your eyes peeled. is is really the uh, only way to go with that. Okay, next question: um, Have you seen the Henry Homesteader nine millimeter carbine? Uh, I saw, I've seen pictures of it, and 
um, actually it was yesterday, um, I saw one in the flesh. I did not get a chance to fire it. What impressed me about it the most was that in some small way it does resemble the 1907 Winchester. Now, yeah, the materials are all different, and that's kind of in profile. It, it's it's not an exact copy. It's certainly not going to fool anyone, but it's the same style. It would be a very fun rifle to use in something like uh, zoot shooting, which is kind of moribund now. But there there are some some other ones where they they have uh, so there are some other opportunities to use it. Be fun for that. It's a nice traditional nine millimeter carbine that you can you can have around it it does not scream uh, tactical at you and so it's a very 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 cool weapon uh, this one was 799 I don't know if that's the MSRP or if that's just the kind of the uh, the price but uh, seemed seemed okay I'm I am not in the market for a nine millimeter eight hundred dollar nine millimeter carbine so uh, as much as I kind of kind of like it, I I have no use for it. I'm not really who they're after. But I could see there are people who judge guns on appearance, um, and so it can give you the same capability as something else, and not have a particularly tactical appearance. Um, I did see a few posts uh, about a week ago saying, "Wow, if it was just in 10 millimeter." If it's just in 45 ACP, well, it could it could come out in some other calibers, I suppose. Um, but I think the problem with that is going to be like 10 millimeter. Um, it's not a locked breech design, so you know it's going to be it's it's going to be a real problem to contain that cartridge. Could see it perhaps in 40 Smith and Wesson. Could see it perhaps in it'd be very slick in 38 Super. A caliber nobody really wants anymore but it would be perfect for that it would actually um, if you can get it to perform beyond nine millimeter and the the problem with that is nine millimeter ammo is so much cheaper than 38 super but 38 super would be would be a lot of fun but the Henry Homesteader looks like it's good I I never liked Henry guns uh, I'll be honest with you I've never cared for them some of their 22s are pretty good I know they make a copy of the original 1860 Henry which has got has gotten very very good reviews they also still produce the uh, they are the latest producers of the AR7 survival rifle semi-automatic 22 that that's still I still like seeing that on the market it's a cool gun but uh, they're bigger guns I never really cared for but now they've actually gone to the King's patent loading gate um, so the, the the appearances are looking pretty pretty good. Um, an acquaintance of mine has got one uh, in 3030. It's a nice rifle. It's a nice gun. So I think uh, they've come around, and I think they make one in 4570 also. Uh, that'd be all right. That'd be all right. I I would tend to want to go to Marlin, but you know, hey, sometimes you have to go with what's there. So. Uh, all right. Have you seen the? Here's a related question. Have you seen the Rossi Winchester 94 style 3030 lever action? I, I've seen one. They they look fine. I don't know that much about them. I think that they're selling for a little bit over 800. Um, I would say that uh, 
you know, that's a lot of money. I would look for a used Winchester somewhere. There's got to be some of those for less than 800 or about 800 but be that as it may, there's nothing, I've heard nothing bad about the Rossi. And, um, you know, it just, it's just what guns cost these days. It's kind of, kind of shocking when you think about a $800 lever action, but that's what they cost. So it, they're definitely uh, worth going after. So that's the, uh, that's the deal there. And of course, lever actions are becoming so much more popular than they ever were. People really like the nostalgia. And 3030s especially have become a lot more popular. People realize that's not a wimpy caliber. That is not a pistol caliber. So um, it is a legit rifle caliber and it is ideally suited to kind of a lightweight uh, fast handling carbine. It's, it's a really good match. Okay, here's the next one. This is a great one. Have you heard of the Texas Doughboys World War One shooting group? You know, I, I've seen them on uh, Facebook, and, and they're man, they're right up my alley, man. They they uh, are not associated or affiliated, I should say, with the Single Action Shooting Society. So they they're kind of started out, from my understanding, as a wild bunch plus kind of club you know they like that wild bunch era for wild bunch for people who don't know it's an offshoot of cowboy action shooting which focuses on the world war one or pre-world war one era just like the movie the wild bunch did just like the movie the professionals did um kind of that poncho via type of deal and they've taken it one step farther um they actually have a prohibition class which is like zoot shooting they also have um i think the audie murphy class which you can use an m1 carbine they have a world war ii they have a doughboy class which you can use any um 1945 or previous uh so i mean they they are really that's that's right up my alley that's the kind of stuff they like now they they do it just like cowboy action shooting it's stages there's a guy behind you with the timer and the, the, the beeper, you know, and all this. And, and, uh, and it's three-gun. The nice part is they don't have the three-gun. They don't have all the rules. You know, when Wild Bunch came out because people wanted to do something more than SAS. And then, of course, once it got absorbed by the larger organization, all the bullshit rules and everything else came down. And there are people who just want freedom from that uh they just don't want to be told you these are the two shotguns you can use this is the rifle you can use um all of this kind of nonsense uh that, that comes down you know power factors and, and you know all this stuff that takes the fun out of it i'll, I'll give you an example for wild sass wild bunch your rifle has to be over 40 caliber, 40 caliber or greater. Okay, no big deal. I've got a Marlin 3840, a 40 caliber rifle. Well, then you have to have a 180 grain bullet. Well, guess what? The only mold that I can, the mold I use, throws a 175 grain bullet. 
So right then and there, man, it's it's like game over if they really want to enforce these bullshit rules. You know, it's freaking nonsense. I, I get it. They don't want cap guns out there, you know, just shooting these totally light loads. I, I kind of get that, but, you know, by the same token, most people who shoot 3840, unless you buy the bullets, you have to cast them yourself. And the most economical mold you can get is one from Lee, which casts a 175 grain bullet. Why they can't just lower that threshold, I do not know. But anyway, that's a, that's a reason that, you know, when you join these associations, it's, it's, it's kind of a pain. These guys are just fun. And, and as a matter of fact, they, they have a big match scheduled. And uh, you can find them on Facebook at Texas Doughboys World War I, WW1 slash ONE1. But I'm sure if you put in Texas Doughboys, you'll, you'll probably turn them up. But somebody was was uh, scolding them, saying, "Hey, this match you have is it conflicts with this big SAS match that's on," and they basically said, "Hey, tough man, we aren't associated with that. We don't have to de-conflict with that. Have a nice day," which I kind of liked. I thought that was uh, pretty good. So they've really done a great job in, uh, you know, kind of opening opening the parameters so you can shoot you know guns that are guns that are a little more fun a little more challenging it kind of reminds me of some of the stuff when in-range TV was actually cool or cooler than it is now you know when they would kind of do those three gun matches or two gun matches with um, you know vintage weapons this is kind of the same thing and um, you know they they do the costuming with it, which which is good. You know all of us are, you know, not exactly twenty year old uh, recruiting posters anymore. So, you know, I think they do cool stuff. They're in North Texas, uh, north of Dallas, and you know that is that is within my striking distance. So we'll see. We'll see if we can uh, crank that through. I, I've got some things that are probably going to keep me busy for the next year, but. Uh, we'll see if that can that can happen. That would be awesome. Okay, are vintage gun restoration projects worth the trouble? Uh, I will tell you that uh, the answer is yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and the reason I say that is, if the gun has not had metal cut, if it's just had the stock cut and you can get a replacement stock and, and get the little bits you might need of, of uh, bands and sling swivels and stuff like that uh, if you can do that uh, you're it's it's probably fine and in fact you're restoring the gun back to its service configuration okay great you know you might have a repo stock on it but you know that's that's not a big deal you, you can still have a great shooting fun gun if the metal's been cut then it becomes a lot more problematic because maybe you have to go find an original length barrel but okay so you suck that up and do it my thing has normally been that by the time you get done with one of these you've put more money into it than if you had just gone out and bought the gun you really wanted anyway um, the only way these things work out is if you get into the gun for zero dollars grandfather had it my brother-in-law had it gave it to me that kind of stuff um, if people do that then they can 
you know, then you can kind of justify the cost and say, well, I'm getting a whatever it is, and it's only costing me $450 rather than the $800 to 1000 that I would have spent had I gone to buy one. Um, that's it. Un unfortunately, a lot of project guns have been drilled. That's You can still do it, but hey, you're going to have holes in the top. Some people that matters, some people doesn't. Um, you know, so any restoration you do is going to be imperfect. You have to accept that because you may have to use repo parts or repo stock. And if the metal has been seriously messed with on the receiver, um, you probably, you know, are going to have something that's, it's going to be close, but it's always going to have, you know, the giz, you know, something wrong with it. So, so there you go. Um, the the other the other one that I did not mention was hey it's it's a gun with sentimental value hey this was grandfather's kind of a project gun he was working on he never finished it I want to turn it back to the way it was then you go ahead and do that if it's sentimental value then the money doesn't matter you spend the money on it and and it doesn't matter the two guns that I've done this with um, well actually one it's only one gun because he the first gun I didn't do anything to it. It was a 1903 Springfield made in uh, January 1942 uh, by Remington. So it looks like a, it, it's one of the, the earlier Remington Springfields, so it looks like more like a World War I style gun than it does a, uh, a World War II style gun. On the receiver, someone had put some sort of a receiver sight on it, and it has two tiny holes with screws in it, and they're there. So I, you know, basically just left it alone. They're not noticeable, and I just don't really care. It's it's fine. I got it as a shooter-grade gun. Uh, it was very economically priced, so I, I bought it, I had it, and I like it. So it's fine. Um, it, it, they, don't, they don't stand out. You really, most people who, when they look at the gun, they don't even notice it, and then I point it out to them, and, and then they see it. The next gun I, I did this with... Um, I actually did put some money into it was a Remington model 1917 that had been horribly sporterized the ears cut off and there'd been some contouring done to the receiver so really I got a barreled receiver and a, and a box of parts and a, and a horrible looking stock so I put it together and of course it didn't have any sights because the front side had been taken off it did have the original unmolested barrel but the finish had all been stripped off it <coughs> So I, I just left it the way it was, and uh, uh, I put it back in the stock. I assembled the whole thing, and I had a gunsmith. He had to uh, um, actually fit a Mauser um, scope bridge on it, put it on there, and then I mounted a scope. And so I have a what looks like a 1950s-style sporter. Um, you know, I, I salvaged the gun. I put probably as much into the gun between the uh, the gunsmithing work the the scope the rings and I put a Weaver K6 scope on it I bought someplace all in all I probably have what the gun is actually worth retail if I sold it retail right now uh, or sold it wholesale whatever if I sold it right now I'd probably get out what I put into it uh, because it's it's never going to appreciate it only has worth as a utilitarian gun there's no there's no military 
gun value to this thing other than you know you, it, unless you wanted to do something cool like put a 35 whalen barrel on it or something but um it's in its original 30 i left it in 30 out six i didn't want to molest the barrel someday i may come across a remington 1917 that needs a decent barrel and this is a decent barrel and so you know this could be a donor you know it could could be a donor for some project like that um if i don't though it stays it's 30 out six a great caliber um you know and it's a great gun that you can just take out and use so i basically think that they are what i would say is they're not worth the trouble unless you have a compelling reason and the compelling reason is i got it for free and i know the money i'm going to put into it is still going to be less than than uh, what a the the end result would cost me if i went out and bought it retail um it's a labor of love because it has sentimental value or it's just something that you can just cludge together kind of like i did and and hey i've got a i've got a useful i've returned a at least a useful firearm back to the pool where it was just some horrible parts and this is the one i i think i think i've shown this to friend of the podcast it has the worst some amateur carver who actually did a pretty good job the carving is okay he carved the stock and i think he tried to put in um a bear but the ears got too big so it kind of looks like a cross between a cat and a bear so may or or it's some sort of cryptid beast you know what do they call them a wumpus beast or something or it's something like that but it doesn't look like a bear it doesn't look like a cat it doesn't look like anything i've ever seen but it's actually done pretty well you know it's not a crude crude thing at all so i'm like well you know it's it's kind of interesting and the only reason i kept that stock was because i just i at a certain point i said i'm not putting any more money into this thing it's got it's the stock is functional it's fine and so that's the stock it's going to have and uh you know that's kind of where you have to draw the line with some of these projects too you can get ocd and really anal retentive about them but at a certain point you just have to say hey it is what it is and uh um go forth and conquer so there you go uh do guns used by famous assassins get on the market i saw where jack ruby's gun that he killed oswald with um was sold for two hundred thousand dollars years ago well you know it depends on the jurisdiction and and things like that but sometimes those guns are returned to people and they've gone ahead and sold them um you know again wow that's a i do remember reading that oswald's widow tried to get the carcano back that he used at the in the book depository and she could they wouldn't give it back to her so um now is she gonna put this thing up on her wall or give it to her kids no she was gonna turn around and sell it for money so i'm sure that some some of these guns have been um definitely turned back and uh, you know put on the market but i think it's actually a pretty rare occurrence but i i remember the oswald gun was or the uh, jack ruby gun was sold i believe by i believe it was after he was dead met, you know his estate got it back and all the rest of it i personally wouldn't want it but that's okay 
Uh, do you know what a Brevet Colt percussion pistol is? Uh, I, I do know in very general terms that Colt, being pretty smart, being pretty smart, uh, licensed production of his percussion revolvers uh, in the 1850s and I assume through the 1860s and some of them were made in Belgium and, and all the rest of this and they were called Brevet Colts. They were like a licensed copy. I believe some of those some of those get pawned off as originals because most people don't know the difference. Some of them are deliberately fabricated and have been turned into things that they're not um, to fool collectors. You know, there was that whole, remember the guy R.L. Wilson, R.L. Larry Wilson? He was a guy who had a, um, a fairly, fairly sketchy reputation. I think he even did some prison time uh, over wheeling. You know, he, he tried to be a very high-end gun broker where he was the represented both the buyer and the seller he was like the middleman who said i know somebody who's got this for sale and i know somebody who wants to buy it so they'll both kind of work through me as an intermediary and i'll charge a commission and there's nothing absolutely wrong with that but you're putting yourself <laughs> you're putting yourself at risk when he's the intermediary represents the buyer and the seller and is also the guy doing the authentications uh, that's a very very risky uh, endeavor and and so there's a whole there was a whole deal about that and he wound up doing some time on on all that so that was it but I do know what those are but yeah some of those have been pawned off as as things that they are not um, because they're period made so it's going to be very hard for someone to detect what they are especially if they've been embellished or have been have been you know altered with the with deception in mind so yeah i do know what they are they're out there and uh i think uh you know you you, you see them legitimate legitimate ones uh that are um advertised from time to time and they sell for well under what a, a contemporary cult would would sell for do you know about the 5140 sharps cartridge um i know it's a black powder cartridge i i think i may have seen one or two loaded examples at one time i've never fired one i've never seen a gun chambered for one i do know that it the, sh the cartridge came out basically after the buffalo were gone and it came out in the 1880s when the sharps rifle company was out of business you cannot uh, use it in a remington rolling block because the hammer um when it's cocked back the the hammer spur sticks up and you know the hammer um contour sticks up so you can't you can't get the straight shot into the chamber to chamber the thing because it's like three and a quarter inches long so you cannot use it in the rolling block you can use it in the sharps there's probably i think the sharps borch heart you could use it in you know the couple couple things you could use it uh uh you know in any kind of a falling block type rifle i think um but not a rolling block very very powerful the people who have fired them I've um, 
I've read accounts and it was never used you would think people would use it for black powder um, silhouette you know where you have to knock down the buffalo target at you know 500 yards or whatever you think it'd be a natural for that but I think the uh, the recoil was so horrific that uh, you know you you're not going to shoot 30 or 40 of these things in a row and uh, also the cost um, I can't imagine that the uh, empty cartridge cases when you find them are inexpensive I would I would say that they're probably going to be it's going to be like shooting a very expensive African big game rifle like a, a 505 Gibbs or a 416 Rigby or something something like that you're going to be paying uh, a premium just to even get the reloading components on that so anyway that's the uh, that's the information on the 5140 sharps um, I've got a rule that says I won't shoot guns that hurt me so I will probably never really venture into that I do shoot 5070 which is you know at least by the numbers half of that and that's enough for me so we'll go with there but anyway that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And if you have any questions or comments, email them to me at kbmakel, kbmakel, at aol.com, and, or on the comment section of Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>